and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. So today we are getting back to the Egyptian desert. We were talking about the desert fathers and mothers for a couple of episodes. And they are arguably the origin of monasticism. They're arguably the first monks and nuns, unless you go with John Cassian, who says, of course, that the first monks and nuns are seen in the book of Acts, when the Christians all sell everything they have and they come live together and use their money for the common good and for the support of the poor and devote all their time to prayer. In either case, whether it's the Desert Fathers and Mothers or the the early Christians in Acts, they don't look like your typical picture of monks and nuns. These are not people in elaborate habits who all live in a big monastery or a convent together. They're not like the sisters in the movie Doubt or Nuns on the Run or Sister Act or like whatever nun movie you pick. They don't look like the hooded Gregorian chanting guys in all black robes in the choir of a cathedral. So where does all that come from? It comes from one of the most significant desert fathers, St. Pacomius. So St. Pacomius is born in 292 near Thebes in Egypt, and he grows up to be a soldier in the Roman army. He reaches the rank of Optio, which is kind of like a sergeant major, I think, not knowing enough about military ranks, but he is in he's a non-commissioned officer who's in charge of a large group of soldiers. And after a long successful military career, being on campaigns through the Roman Empire, he decides to settle down and move out to the desert. So, like all the desert fathers and mothers, he sells everything he owns, and he goes out, and he finds a spiritual guide, a spiritual father in the desert. This is about 317 AD, and when he goes out to the desert, he doesn't find just any old spiritual father. He meets this guy, Palaemon. And Palaemon is one of Anthony's, Anthony the Great, father of monasticism, he is one of Anthony's disciples. And he is known for being one of Anthony's strictest, most intense, most hardcore, most ascetical disciples of all. So Pacomius spends years with Palaemon, learning desert spirituality, sitting in his cell, praying, saying the Psalms, sleeping on the ground, eating almost nothing, drinking little bits of water, not sleeping very much. And for Pacomius, this isn't actually that much harder than life in the military. In the military, you are sleeping on the ground, drinking muddy water, not eating very much, giving up basically everything for years while you're on campaign. And so Pacomius says, this is great. This is, you know, what I'm used to. Plus, I get to pray all day. What what more could anyone want? But he sees all these other young men and women streaming out to the desert. And they sell everything they have, and they put on beggar's rags, and they go and find someone to be a disciple to. And then for them, it is rough. Because they are school teachers. They are farmers used to sleeping inside. They are government administrators. They've never slept on hard ground a night in their lives. They've certainly never had a meal that's like six lettuce leaves or whatever. They've never drunk muddy water. This life is just impossible for them. And even though they have so much goodwill and so much faith, and they genuinely desire to devote their entire life to serving the Lord, to contemplating God, 
they just can't take it. And so after a few years, they go back to the city, now having nothing because they sold all their possessions. And it's kind of a tragedy for them. So after seeing this year in and year out, Pacomius is thinking about the monastic life. He is praying and he hears a voice. According to one ancient historian who is a near contemporary of Pacomius's, one day he was sitting in his cave and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, with regard to yourself, you have become perfect. And if you want to live a good and holy life, well, you're doing it. So you don't really need to stay in this cave in total isolation 24-7. You've conquered the passions to a large extent. You're doing a great job. So now, says the angel, go forth and collect together the less perfect young men and dwell and be with them. And as I give you an ordinance, thus teach them. You, Pacomius, are killing it at the monastic life. You can not take a break, but start to do something else. You have gotten what you needed from life in a cave all these years, so now you can start giving that as a gift to other people who don't have the same bodily strength, maybe even the same spiritual strength. And I, the angel, I'm going to give you a template for a shared life together, which even those who are not super, super strong can still live successfully. And so this becomes the first monastic rule in Egypt. And this rule doesn't start out by saying, I, Pacomius, have some great ideas about innovation in the church, and here's what I'd like you to do. Instead, it starts, in the name of the Holy Trinity, the ordinance which the angel of the Lord commanded to Abba Pacomius. For Pacomius and for the early monks and nuns of the desert, this was seen as a gift directly given by God to humanity, not to Pacomia specifically, but to humanity, this way of growing in holiness without having to be Superman. And so this rule says things like, prohibit neither eating nor fasting. So you don't want to have seasons where you say, okay, everybody has to go without food for four days, nor do you want to say, if you feel like fasting, sorry, you can't, you have to eat exactly what every other brother or sister is having. Instead, the angel commands him to give work in proportion to food, to give food in proportion to the strength or the weakness of the individual. It is very much meant to be an easy life to pursue. Not, of course, easy by our standards. It's not like they each one gets a lazy boy and they like kick back and like watch Netflix or whatever, but easy compared to the standard of the desert fathers and mothers. It's not brutal, it's not overwhelming, it's gentle and kind. The sense is, if you can be like Pacomius, if you can be like Anthony, and just go out into the desert and live for decades in total isolation, eating and drinking almost nothing, rarely sleeping, that's the way to go. Go for it. Like, that is not gold stars in heaven, that's not that God is happier with you or something, but you are giving all of your time, all of your attention, all of your focus, everything you have to Christ. And if you can do that, fantastic. But if you can't, there are options. So before this time, before the 320s, there were certainly hermits who lived together. You might have a group of hermits who lived within shouting distance of each other, or you might have a group of hermits who even occupy an abandoned village together or live in adjoining caves. But the way in which they did that, that sort of happened and evolved organically, and they would still spend most of their time in isolation, 
and maybe come together for conferences on for, for holy discussion and for worship on Saturdays and Sundays. But in the rule Pacomius receives from the angel, he's explicitly told, and make a dwelling in one enclosed place. Make one big structure for everybody to live in, or a compound of buildings all together, but basically some arrangement in which everybody shares a single common life. And this is not only where they sleep and where they pray, but also sharing their meals. They are to come together for meals and eat meals together. So like all the monks and nuns we picture in the West, they are living in one community. Not only that, they even have matching outfits. And they shall clothe themselves with a sleeveless linen undergarment and a leather girdle. And let each one of them have a woolly blanket made of a white goat skin. And when they go to the sacrifice... On the Sabbath of the Christians, when they go to church on Sunday, the sacrifice of the Eucharist to receive the Holy Communion, they shall loosen their girdles, and they shall lay aside their skin garments, and enter alone with their hoods, and ordain for them, wait, what hoods? Ordain for them hoods without shaggy hair, like those of children, and command thereon the stigma sign of the cross in purple." So they have their kind of everyday outfit of this sleeveless linen garment. They are girded with a belt, and then they have this hood, and this hood is to be worn in certain contexts. But it is a simple hood, like the hood of children. It's not fancy, it's not rakish, it's not warrior-like. It is the simple hood with a little purple cross. And what else do they have? Nothing. It says, no one shall at all accumulate anything whatever except what is given to him by his superiors, except his clothes. And this consists of two undergarments and a covering and a shaggy cloak of leather and shoes and two hoods and a girdle and a staff. That's it. That is the regulation equipage, and that's all you get. And if there is anyone who accumulates a possession, even a needle, without his teacher knowing it, then let his penance be fifty days threefold with fasting and water and bread. But the possession itself they shall hand over to the association, and his prostrating shall be increased to 200 times. So if you have a needle, if you have a pencil, if you have a cell phone, if you have whatever it is, that's a possession which can then become an idol. Oh, nobody's going to get my needle. This is my needle. I'm not going to share this with anyone. Oh, it's so sharp. It's really good at sewing. I don't want anyone to doll it. I have to protect this needle. Once you start thinking in those terms, you're focusing on a needle rather than on Christ. And so it's not that possessions are evil or anybody who owns a needle should be locked up or whatever. It's that possessions can be a distraction from the one needful thing, the one focus of our entire life, which is the Lord. So just like the other fathers of the desert, the other mothers of the desert, these monks living in community have a rule of poverty. Before we talked about how the monks would go into the desert, these young men or young women would go out into the desert, and they would find a spiritual father or mother, and they would submit themselves to them. So you might go out into the desert, you find some old man of the desert, and you say, I want to be a hermit. And he says, okay, take that dead stick and stick it in the ground and go walk three miles away to the well and bring back water and water the stick every day for five years. And you think, this is insane, but I am living under obedience, so I guess this is what I do. 
And then over time, that stick starts to sprout branches and flowers and grows into a huge, beautiful tree. This is one of the great stories of the desert. But you basically do whatever your spiritual father or mother tells you. Not because they have all the answers, not because what they're telling you is this amazingly helpful life and because you're watering a stick, it's just going to do so much for you spiritually, but because you're giving up power, you're giving up control. Not because power and control are evil things, not because anyone who is in power is automatically a Stalin or whatever. You're giving up power because power is an idol. Once you have power over yourself, over your own decisions, you start to protect that and worship that. And if you cast all power aside and live a life of total obedience, then you don't have to focus on that anymore. And so in Pacomius's rule, we're told, and let no one go anywhere without the knowledge of the prior, the head monk. And no one shall take anything whatever from his brother, without the knowledge of the prior. Hey, can I borrow your pencil? Sure, but first go ask the prior. And no one shall enter upon an act to undertake work without the knowledge of the prior. Maybe I'll just fix this bicycle. Oh, no, I should go ask the prior first. Let no one knead clay without the knowledge of the prior. Ah, maybe I should make a brick. Oh, no, ah, go talk to the prior. And whenever anything is done, let it not be done without the knowledge of the prior. So, these monks live under total obedience to the prior. Again, not because the prior is some genius who has all the answers, but because they are giving up all power. They have no power over their lives, and that is freeing to them to focus only on Christ. Obviously, this could also be used in some kind of weird cult context where you give up all power and then you have someone bossing you around making you do creepy things. But that is not what things looked like in these early monastic contexts, and that's not what things look like in the majority of monasticism throughout Christian history. Because even the prior is governed by a tremendous amount of rules. And we'll see in later monastic rules that the prior lives a more rigorously ordered life even than the monks or the nuns under his or her rule. So these monks live a life of poverty, they live a life of obedience, and they live a life of chastity, like all monks and nuns. They don't have romantic relationships with anybody. They're meant to be completely focused on Christ. Again, nothing wrong with romance, nothing wrong with getting hitched or whatever, but it can be a distraction because you think, oh, you know, she's so beautiful. He's so handsome. Oh, I'm so obsessed. All I want to do is daydream about this person. And you completely ignore Christ. So for these monks and nuns, giving up on romance was giving up a potential thing that drew them away from Christ. Not towards evil, not towards bad stuff, but just away from him. It's like if you're trying to watch a film, and then you have the radio on, and you have uh, your email called up on your phone, and you're doing the ironing, and whatever, you're not really focusing on the film. So you have to put down the ironing, turn off your phone, turn off the radio, and focus on the one needful thing. It's not because ironing is evil, it's not because the radio is evil. Email, I'm kind of mixed on email, might be evil. It drives me crazy. But it's not that those are bad things. It's just that you are shutting them down to focus on one thing. So money, sex, power, not bad things. But these monks and nuns were shutting those down to focus on one thing, which is the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But if they're going to focus on the love of God, 
then they have to live the love of God. So anger, quarreling, arguments, fighting, selfishness, gossip, these are massively prohibited in Pacomius' rule. It is not befitting that on the holy hill there should be any quarreling and clamor and crying aloud. And if anyone does this, let his penance be to the eighth day, and let him prostrate himself each day three hundred times. And if anyone causes contention and controversy and altercation and quarreling after supper or after breakfast, let his penance be ten days, and they shall deny him the holy supper. He shall be denied holy communion. Because quarreling, slander, argument, backbiting, all these things, these are expressions of a total lack of love for your brothers or your sisters. And that is not part of the monastic life. That is an even greater distraction from the love of God than is spending a billion dollars or having affairs or whatever, because it is this willful repulsion of love. Obviously, Pacomius would not be into anybody having affairs or wasting a million dollars on pointless things or whatever. I mean, those are utterly prohibited as well, both for monks and for just every Christian. If you're like taking the vast wealth that you've been given and using that to buy like dumb stuff instead of like helping the poor at all, that is not part of the Christian program. Obviously, affairs not either. But quarreling, vengeance, backbiting, gossip, slander, unkindness, starting fights, these are really just saying, I'm going to take love and I'm going to toss it in the garbage can. So Pacomius' rule goes to great extents to kind of re-emphasize how destructive and dangerous anger and unkindness can be. If you go to a modern monastery today, most likely, at least if it's a kind of old school monastery, at meal times, everyone will gather together in a refectory, they will all focus on their own food, There'll be no chatting or talking, and instead you'll have someone reading to you from a lectern. This is the way it's done in the Benedictine tradition, other traditions as well. Pacomius says, And while they eat, they shall cover their heads with their hoods, so that one brother does not see the other chewing. And there shall be no conversation while they eat. They come together to eat, and they're eating in community, they're eating as one, they're receiving the gift of sustenance, of life from God in their food, but they're not gathering together to chit-chat. This is not a social occasion. It's really this holy occasion. And if you go to a modern monastery there will, or a modern convent, there will almost always be specific times of prayer when everyone gathers together to pray. And, in Pacomius' rule, And the angel commanded, they shall each day pray twelve times, at evening twelve times, and in the night twelve times, and at the ninth hour, like 3 p.m.-ish, three times. And when the associations eat, then a psalm shall be repeated before the prayer. So you have these very set, organized times of communal prayer that happen throughout the day. But here's an interesting thing. So Pacomius has been living for a long time this really intense, hardcore life of prayer. He is up all night reciting the Psalms. He is praying with his hands outstretched before the rising of the sun and staying that way all day long. He has led this really, really intense prayer life. And so Pacomius answers the angel saying, few are these prayers. Like, what, are you kidding? I thought we were like a group of hermits doing hermit stuff, not like, you know, somebody who occasionally remembers to pray. And the angel said to him, this I have commanded, that also the weak may be able to attain to 
and do this ordinance without grieving themselves. But the perfect do not desire for themselves an ordinance, for they themselves in their dwellings have resigned their whole lives to the Lord who sees it. But these things I have ordained for those who have no advisors, so that they may be able at least to do as a service what has been commanded them, and may come to the sacred rites openly with shining countenance. So if you want to be hardcore, go off and be hardcore. That is great. You don't need a rule for that. Yeah, just go to your cell and pray 24-7. But if you can't do that, if you are spiritually weak, physically weak, I would 100% put myself in both those categories. If you were kind of a normal person and not like Wonder Woman, then this is the rule for you. And speaking of the Wonder Women of the desert, the desert mothers, this is not for dudes only. So we're told... And Pacomius' sister in the flesh, his actual blood sister, the daughter of his parents, she loved monasticism. And so he cut her hair, shaved her head, and put a girdle around her, and made her a dwelling place on the opposite side of the river, at the distance of a mile. So Pacomius' first monastery is on this island, and then on the other side of the water, a mile away, he establishes this house for his sister, who also wants to live a monastic life. And at her instigation, virgins and widows collected together and became exceedingly good. So these women, a mile away on the other side of the water, are living basically just the same life as the men. Everything is just the same. Rather than being under the Pacomius, they're under Pacomius's sister, and they share this life of prayer. Even though they are in total fellowship with these male monks, they never see one another. We're told, but neither did the men see the women's faces, nor did the latter see the faces of the former. And the women reached a number of 180 nuns, and the men 340 monks. And he commanded that they should be exceedingly careful not to see the women's faces nor hear their voices. So the men don't see the women, The women don't see the men. This is not because women are bad or corrupt or something. This is not because men are evil and lecherous or something. This is because one distracts the other. So if you are attracted to ladies, if you have a lady around, that can be like turning on the radio when you're meant to be watching the movie. If you are attracted to fellas and there's a fella around, that can be like looking at your phone while you're trying to watch the movie. So you put down those you find attractive to focus on the one needful thing. And there are only two times that the monks and nuns come in contact. So on Sundays, the monks will send a priest and a deacon or a priest or multiple priests across to the women's monastery so that they can celebrate the Holy Eucharist together. And then when a nun dies, she is brought across the river to the men and she is buried with the monks. So they have one joint cemetery for both men and women. So ultimately, they're together forever, but uh, in a time in which distraction is totally irrelevant because they are face-to-face with the throne of glory. Over time, this method of doing monasticism spreads throughout Egypt. There are all these different monasteries, all living from the rule of Pacomius. So after Pacomius, you have these two different kinds of monks and nuns. You have what are called hermetic monks and nuns. And the hermetic, this means hermit-like. These hermit monks and nuns live out by themselves in the wilderness. And the wilderness in Egypt means the desert. 
The wilderness in France means the forest. The wilderness can mean whatever, wherever. It just means away from civilization, away from the ordered city life, away from other people in quiet. Not because that's peaceful and pleasant, but because in in the quiet you are kind of stripped of distractions and you are you are facing the challenges of the dangerous wild world and you are focused completely on Christ, putting yourself completely in his hands. But then you also have a monastic life for those who are not strong enough to face all the challenges of the wilderness on their own, not strong enough to face all the spiritual challenges of total isolation on their own. And these are these mutually supportive communities, which we call Cenobitic monasticism, but usually when you talk about monks and nuns, that's just what you're thinking of. If you want to see a really interesting exploration of modern-day monasticism, there are two great movies worth checking out. One is called Integrate Silence, and it is a documentary about life in a monastic community in France that is very much modeled on this kind of original Pacomia-style monasticism. Or some might even say it harkens back uh, to the generation uh, of monks that Pacomius joined, in which you have hermits living side-by-side side, kind of in community. But it's it's a beautiful, extremely slowly-paced very prayerful. It's almost like a retreat in film form. It's Integrate Silence. Excellent. Worth watching. And then for Eastern Christianity, there's a movie called Mount Athos, A Monk's Republic. And this is also this very slow, meditative, beautiful immersion into this life of holiness on Mount Athos in Greece. So both of these are just incredible portraits of the reality of monastic life. And it is both more kind of prayerful and joyous than one can possibly imagine, uh, but also seemingly in some ways harder than one can imagine. It's it's really just a, both are fascinating, really exciting explorations of the spirituality born out of Pacomius's rule. Later when we come to explore the rule of St. Benedict, later when we come to explore St. Basil, we'll see the ways in which these, these early forms of monasticism were adapted for Christian life in the East and the West and grew in their own really exciting, interesting trajectories. Next time, we'll be getting back into some of the political life of the church. We'll be looking at the Second Ecumenical Council and the theology of that council. So thank you so much for being with me again. My name is Bertie Pearson. Um, my email is Bertie, B-E-R-T-I-E, at grace, G-R-A-C-E-E-P-I-S, graceapis.org. If you have questions, if there are things you're like, oh man, I wish you would have talked about this, I would love to hear those. So please don't hesitate to be in touch.